Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting this week's Motley Fool Money. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. Post a job today at linkedin.com fool and get $50 off your first job post. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week, senior analyst Jason Moser, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey. Hi, Chris. It's spring break. We're coming to you from Cancun, Mexico. <laughs> Not really, but we are taking advantage of spring break to bring you our spring cleaning special. So before we get into individual stocks, Ron Gross, let's go broad for a minute. 2019 so far, what's been the biggest surprise for you? For me, it is the S&P 500 performance after a disastrous, and I mean disastrous, December. First quarter, uh, S&P 500 total return index, which includes dividends, up almost 14%, the best quarterly performance since the second quarter of 2009, and the biggest gain in the first quarter since 1998. I didn't didn't expect it, but I'm happy to say it. Jason? Yeah, I guess I'm going to go actually individual stock here. Um, to me, I, I really was surprised at the reaction to Stamps.com, uh, the, the shares when they announced that they were going to be ending their exclusive relationship with uh, the United States Postal Service. Uh, and I think the reason why, I'm, maybe I'm not as surprised about the reaction, but really when you dig into it, I'm really surprised at how badly management repurchased shares over the past couple of years. Because they spent in 2017 about 135 million dollars in share repurchases in a little bit more than that in 2018 when the share price was 200 250 dollars and now you're looking at a share price of around 78 79 dollars after that news was announced I mean I think we thought that maybe there would be some uh, litigation that would come of that it does look like there's at least one class yeah, action lawsuit out one, there think, yep. um, who knows maybe in five years this looks like the right move for them given the nature of e-commerce and shipping in general but wow man what a start to the year. Andy Cross? Chris, I wanted to say the Kraft Heinz announcement, that triple whammy, but you know what I'm going to go with is Ellie Mae's acquisition in February. Ellie Mae, that does a mortgage uh, software company, um, announced that they are selling out the company, selling the company for $99 a share to a private equity firm. And actually, I that that price to me seems low. That's below the 52-week high of 16. And most investors like to see the stock when they make an acquisition be higher than the 52-week high. I mean, but it's also selling out. I think at a kind of bad time. The U.S. housing market has gone through a little bit of a slump when mortgage rates uh, increase. But now that might be starting to reverse. Inventory's tight. I just look out the next couple of years, and I think LMA could do a little better independently. But for some reason, they decided they wanted to sell the company. You know, that was on my list as one to consider. And I think the thing that really surprised me was the acquirer. Like it was a private equity yeah. acquisition versus, I mean, I could see where a big bank might take a lot of interest in that or, or something of that nature. But to see, yeah, taken out, I think a little bit early, definitely a little cheap. They got that thing for a steal, I think. Next thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. <laughs> Some people were made millionaires after this. <laughs> uh, Jason, Ron mentioned the drop that we saw in December, and looking back on that, it's clear there were a lot of investors who just got spooked at what happened with the market. We saw a big sell-off. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised by it, given the run of the bull market up to that. But let's face it, there were some investors who were opportunistic 
in the month of December. They sure. looked at it as a chance to do some bargain hunting. So for anyone listening who f- was in the former camp and now looks back <laughs> at December and says, gosh, I really should have been looking to buy instead of just selling stuff off. What tips do you have for people who are looking to be opportunistic the next time there's a market drop? Yeah, I mean, that is a lot easier said than done. I think once you go through it a couple of times, it does get a little bit easier. Um, I mean, why not use an episode like this? Follow our lead, do a little spring cleaning, go through your portfolio, and maybe cull the, the underperformers. Perhaps trim a, a, a high flyer and, and raise a little cash. Also, I do think it's worth noting that if you have a 401k with your employer, uh, sometimes, and I know in our case here we have this option, you'll have a self-directed option where you can actually take that money that goes into the 401k, and instead of uh, plowing it right into an S&P fund, you could actually use that cash to purchase shares on, on that self-directed option. So, investigate and see if you do have that self-directed uh, option through your employer, if you have a retirement account through your employer. Uh, and that can be another source of funds for when a rainy day does come. For me, once things started to get a little bit shaky, I went to my portfolio and I looked at where I potentially was under-allocated. And not surprisingly, for a value guy, I was under-allocated in tech and software services. And so, I went to my watch list, which I keep, try to keep it relatively up-to-date. And not surprisingly, there was not a lot of tech and software services there. So, I reached out to a colleague, in this case, Tim Byers, and I said, if, if things continue to get bad, give me five high-tech stocks that you think I should buy um, on the weakness. And he did. I ended up actually buying four of them. Uh, it worked out, worked out wonderfully so far. But first, I went to my watch list, because I always try to keep a list there of stocks I'd either like to, to initiate a position in or add to. You know, when you're in the middle of those kind of pullbacks, it sometimes gets a little nerve-wracking. And I think for each of us see our stocks fall 15-20%, as we saw in December. But if you truly keep your eyes focused on the long term, and if you are investing for the next 5-10 years, I use that as a reminder. So whether I just keep writing it down to myself when I see this, I'm like, you know what? These stock pullbacks they happen, and I want to use those as an opportunity to to add uh, on on that weakness to my favorite companies. Um, but you have to kind of remind yourself of that constantly that I'm in this for the long term, and over the short term, a, a week, month, or two, quarter, those stock prices aren't nearly as important as the long term, and use that as a chance to put capital to work. Yeah, I do get that question every once in a while when I say business focused investor. I mean, we say that a lot here. Um, and people ask, what exactly do you mean by that? But I think when you look at it as a business and that you're an owner of that business versus owning the actual shares, you start looking at these companies and think, am I okay with owning a piece of this company? Look at it beyond that as opposed to just the individual shares. And that gives yeah. you a better, I think, idea of, of whether or not you can, you can hang in there for the long run and, and not really get too worked up about those uh, short-term movements yeah. like Andy was saying. Well, and to the point Ron made at the top of the show, you look at the bounce back that we've had in the first quarter of 2019, and what happened in December seems like a distant memory. But Andy, you and I were talking the other day. I mean, you can be a foolish, capital F foolish, long-term investor. And still look at some stocks that are out there and think, boy, that's looking pretty pricey. Some of the valuations, even of companies that we're fans of, are looking a little spicy. Oh, sure. I mean, if you go back to September when stocks were at their record high back then, and I don't think we've quite come back there yet. So, uh, stocks were looking expensive. They got. They got hit very hard, and then we had the best first quarter in ten years. So it was a really nice bounce back, very fat, as Ron said, faster than I thought. You and you can be a long term investor and look at stocks and say, you know what, those stocks now, when you see companies, a lot of the software as a service companies, 
excellent companies, MongoDB and the like, um, Trade Desk, which I like very much, but they are selling at you know, 18, 20, 25 times sales, not earnings, sales when the S&P sells at two times sales, 2.2 times sales. And you can just say, wow, those are looking a little bit pricey. Either think about an allocation strategy or, you know what, just again, commit to the long-term focus of it and not be adding to it uh, at those prices. So, let's just go around the table real quick. Ron, I'll start with you. Is there a high flyer out there that you look at similar to uh, keeping with the spring cleaning theme? Uh, If we're looking to trim our hedges a little bit uh, and maybe deploy the cash elsewhere, what do you see that looks a little trimmable. <laughs> I, I think you should keep a, a sharp eye on Chipotle, actually. Up 65% this year, up 120% over the last full year. Uh, relatively new CEO Brian Nickel done a great job, instituted a loyalty program, really turned the business. The stock is back to within 5% of its August 2015 high. Um, so that's a nice turnaround. But now you're sitting at 58 times earnings, where the, the median restaurant company really trades around 25 times. Jason? Yeah, I promise we didn't compare notes here, but <laughs> I was actually going with Chipotle as well um, for all of the reasons that Ron mentioned. But I do have a backup, Chris, so listeners will not be let down here. Um, it, it kind of in, in line with what Andy was talking about there. A lot of great companies out there still trading at some kind of crazy valuations. I mean, I look at Shopify, I like the business, I like the leadership there, but you still have a business there that's not profitable, cash flow not positive there either. Uh, so, for everything that they're doing well on the top line, and they're growing that top line very nicely, I mean, it is not. A space where they don't have a competitor. Square is really upping their game, uh, and they own really their payments infrastructure. Where Spot or where uh, Shopify has to uh, basically uh, contract out to Stripe for theirs. Uh, so yeah, Spot uh, Stripe, uh, Shopify looks a little bit a little bit rich today. To Guys, don't laugh at me about this one, and it might not be a definition of a high flyer, but Cisco Systems, gentlemen, is up more than thirty percent year to date. And now sells at 20 times earnings. They are making these massive share buybacks that I think is driving a lot of the EPS growth there and the outperformance against analyst estimates. And they've been bidding the stock up. I just look at that kind of business, how large it is, tough to innovate with a lot of competitors. And I was thinking if you were looking for a chance and a price to sell some Cisco systems pullback on, I would use now as that time. Coming up, we're going to channel our inner Marie Kondo to find a few stocks that spark joy. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. If you've got the money, I got the time. We'll go honky tonking and we'll have a time. We'll make all the night spots. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. It is our spring cleaning special. All right, Ron, what is one stock that investors should consider throwing out altogether? I'm going to throw myself under the sword here and go with Amco Pittsburgh, ticker symbol AP. It's an old recommendation of mine from my deep value service days. Um, the stock turned out to be a value trap rather than value investment. I still own it. It's down 80% from my cost basis. Very painful. Uh, it's a steel company. They make equipment for steel manufacturers. The company just never took off, never rebounded. The growth in China never supported the business. I don't actually think it ever will. It's probably time for me and others to, to, to move on. 
I'm going to move on to Jason, but I'll be, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I didn't pay attention to a lot of what you said uh, after. Okay, let me, gonna, let me start gonna, over. I'm going to throw myself under the sword. Yeah, I'm going to stab you with my bus. We were waiting for Titan International, right? All right, what do you got, Jason? Uh, well, so I, I was afraid Ron was actually going to say what I'm getting ready to say, because I'm sure this would be viewed as straight-up blasphemy. But I wonder if Berkshire Hathaway really today is <gasps> oh, worth holding on to at this point. Everybody gasp. Everybody gasp. <laughs> I mean, at least in relation to the other opportunities out there. And, and I will stipulate here, you said this doesn't have to be a stock that we hate or anything. It's just maybe it's heydays past. I, I can't help but wonder if maybe Berkshire Hathaway's heyday isn't past. I like the business. I like insurance. But even Buffett admits he's having a hard time finding meaningful acquisition at this point in 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 his in in Munger's days are somewhat limited I mean, I, I'm not going to lie, Chris. Recently, I sold my Berkshire Hathaway <laughs> shares, and I plowed that money into Markel because I feel like Markel, as a similar business, much smaller, maybe there is a bit more of a growth prospect there. Jason, have you heard about Amco Pittsburgh? <laughs> <laughs> Andy Cross, what about you? I'm sticking with a theme that I've been selling over the last couple of years, and that's just Pepsi. It had been a large position, and um, revenue, operating profits, cash flows, all f- flat over the last five years. Very tough space now. In the consumer products goods business, um, spends more in share buybacks and dividends than in capex. It's very profitable and has really good returns on equity, as they've been levering up the balance sheet. But really, as the market in the S and P 500 moves more towards tech, I just see companies like Pepsi having a tough um, road ahead to keep up with the growth in um, in technology. And so, I think Pepsi is one that has probably seen better days, and it might grow, but just not going to grow really all that fast. All right. In the spirit of Marie Kondo, and for those unfamiliar, she has a popular book and a Netflix series about the art and science of tidying up. Uh, Ron, what is a stock that sparks joy in you? For me, it's thinking about the future and what CRISPR therapeutics can do. It's a gene therapy company focusing on the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology, may one day allow doctors to actually correct mutations in our DNA and cure diseases that beforehand were thought to be incurable. Um, Fascinating to watch the developments, which are coming faster and faster and faster. What's the ticker? CRSP. Jason Moser? Well, I know everybody probably would expect me to say something like McCormick or Teladoc, but I'm not (laughs) going to say either one of those names, Mac. Um, I, you know, listen, I've got three dogs. I love them. Every time I see them, they make me smile. Uh, when I take them to the vet and I get that bill, I'm reminded that I'm an IDEX Labs shareholder. <laughs> so I'm going to go with IDEX Labs because I do appreciate the fact that this company exists. They help keep those furry friends healthy and happy. They are the market leader in U.S. pet diagnostics. Uh, razor and blade model, very reliable, uh, very popular with the private practice vets out there. Uh, I think plenty of room for the business to still keep on chugging along. And the ticker? Uh, IDXX. Andy Cross, what about you? I tell you, one of the best, I think, run companies out there that I follow is MasterCard. Um, Symbol MA, 50% operating margins, 40% returns on capital, revenue growth for a very large business at 16 to 20% per year, $8 billion of cash on the balance sheet. $6 $6 billion of debt. They earned $5.60 last year. That was up from $2.50 in 2013. Playing in the space of 
uh, currency that is moving more and more to electronic, less cash, um, very large market opportunity in lots of different spots. So I just think the the leadership there to be able to invest that capital in smart ways they generate um, and buy back stock. I think Mastercard is just a company that I, I look at my portfolio and that's just one of my better performers and I just it just sparks joy for me. Let's go to our man behind the glass, Steve Broido. Steve. You're an experienced investor. What's a stock that sparks joy for you? Well, I can tell you the ticker SPY is one that I do enjoy watching. Uh, it's just the index fund, and uh, that's one that uh, never fails to impress me. So, not United Airlines. <laughs> Definitely not United <laughs> Airlines. I do like MasterCard, though. Uh, before we wrap up, guys, let's just go around the table real quick with actual cleaning tips. Yes, we're helping people with their portfolios. But let's also see if we can do a little bit better than the average business show out there. Shall we, Ron? We shall. Um, as some folks may know, I, I like to cook, as does as Jason. And I think it's a very important to know how to clean your high-end cooking knives, sometimes called chef's knives. You do not want to put them in the dishwasher. Mm. They will dull them. They will ruin them. Just um, some nice warm water and some mild soap, a little elbow grease, you got yourself a clean knife. Oh, I've been doing it wrong for a while. That's a good one. I'm Thank right you. there with Thank you. People you. ask, why don't you put them in the dishwasher? I need help That's sharpening right my there. knives. Yeah. Ron, I have, so that. I have a sharpener. Yeah, Come okay. on over. Jason? Okay, three quick things. Uh, invest in just some simple latex gloves to do the dishes. I mean, it just makes all the difference in the world. Make sure that you err on the side of replacing that sink sponge more often than not because they get pretty grody pretty quickly. And always keep a box of magic erasers mm. nearby because those things those things are remove magic. Pretty much anything. It's unbelievable. Yeah, Andy, Jason, I'm three for three on your list. I like that. Hey now. Um, Here's one that I follow, and I think it's good and working kind of for me, but you got to be careful. And it's ask for forgiveness, not for permission when you throw away things from your kids' bedrooms. So when you find lots of stuff that they just no longer use or can't use, I just kind of tend to put that into the trash can and see what happens. I, I, it's, it's, it's backfired for me a couple times, but I think in Marie Kondo language and, and style of trying to get rid of things that just don't really meet that joy hurdle, kid stuff is just um, has a short life, <laughs> short shelf life. Steve, what about you? I'm a big fan of alcohol wipes. I feel like wiping <laughs> oh, I things alcohol. off. <laughs> I thought it was just alcohol. Yeah. That Back too. to Cancun. That too. But alcohol wipes, wipe off that computer keyboard and mouse, kill those germs. That's good. I, I'm going to go uh, out of the kitchen. I'm just going to go straight to the closet. And uh, I don't know who told me this years ago, but the idea that if you look into your closet and you see any clothing that you haven't worn for at least mm -hmm. a year, I like that. That's yeah. a good one. That is a guts to go situation. It's time what, to go. what if they still have the tags on them and you oh, never worn them? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's always a little embarrassing. All right, Ron Gross, Jason Moser, Andy Cross, guys, thanks for being here. Thank thanks, Chris. All right, now that our closets and portfolios have been taken care of, we're going to revisit a conversation with Dan Levitin, author of the New York Times bestseller, The Organized Mind. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Hey, all the happiness in the world can't buy you money. But if I had plenty, I could keep a safe flow. Yeah, then in the end, if my ship don't come in, I just buy a big boat. Hey, don't fast forward. Don't fast forward because there's a chance, there's just a chance you might be involved in doing some hiring at your business. And when you're looking to make a hire naturally, 
you want the best person for the job. And odds are that person is on LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs makes it easy to get matched with quality candidates who make the most sense for your role. People come to LinkedIn every day to learn and advance their careers. So LinkedIn understands what they're interested in and what they're looking for. That means when you use LinkedIn Jobs to hire someone, your matches are based on a lot more than just a resume. Your LinkedIn Jobs matches are based on skills and background, of course, but they're also based on someone's activities, their passions, their interests. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Dan Levitin is a professor of psychology and behavioral neuroscience at McGill University. He's also a New York Times bestselling author, and his newest book is The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload. Dan, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, Chris. Uh, There are a lot of books out there about how we can all get better organized, uh, but your book really gets into the science behind how our brains work. How does, I guess my first question is, how does understanding neuroscience help us get better organized? Well, as you say, there are a lot of books out there that purport to tell us how to get better organized, how to be more focused, uh, how to be more productive, but uh, the vast majority of them aren't based on scientific principles at all. They're just somebody's own idea, and many of those ideas aren't even tested before they write about them. Uh, where I'm coming from as a cognitive neuroscientist, my my occupation is studying thinking for a living, how the brain works and uh, in some cases how it doesn't work. And people in my field have learned a lot about uh, why the brain pays attention to some things and forgets others. And that became the foundation for writing a book about how we could use the science uh, of attention and memory to help us all in our daily lives. You mentioned attention and memory, and one of the things your book gets into is new research into those areas. So let's start with attention. What, what do we know now about attention that we didn't a few years ago? Well, one of the big things is that uh, we all experience decision fatigue. Uh, And this is a biological constraint in the brain. Every time you make a decision, you use up a little bit of the brain's fuel, which is glucose. And uh, unfortunately, the biology of the brain doesn't distinguish between unimportant decisions and important ones. So if you make a bunch of unimportant decisions, like whether you use a green pen or a red pen or whether to eat uh, Honey Nut Cheerios or Multigrain Cheerios, After a sequence of such trivial decisions, we find that people exhibit poor impulse control and exercise poor judgments in really important decisions, such as whether to put your retirement money into stocks or bonds. Well, I mean, that's a no-brainer. I mean, who would choose multi-grain Cheerios over Honey Nut Cheerios? (laughs) Uh, I thought you were going to go off about the stocks and the bonds. (laughs) No, I think people have heard me do that before. Um, you know, is is that why? I mean, there's the story about Albert Einstein where he he had seven different uh, copies of the exact same wardrobe. Is that why he did that? Was Einstein sort of early to the to the table on this one that he didn't want to waste one second thinking about what clothes he was going to wear? I'm guessing that that was it. Although he didn't have the neuroscience behind it. Uh, you know, my colleague Oliver Sacks. 
uh, adopts a kind of similar rubric, which is that he has the same thing for lunch every day. If you don't have to make these trivial decisions, it lightens the neural burden so that you can really focus on the important ones. Now, I wouldn't advocate necessarily that you wear the same kinds of clothes all the time or that you eat the same thing every day. That's a very personal choice. But what the science does suggest is that if you have important decisions to make, make them early in the day. What do we know now about memory that we didn't a few years ago? Well, we know that memory is more limited than we previously thought. That is the short-term working memory, the number of objects you can consciously deal with at any one time. And this is where memory and attention intersect. It turns out that we can't multitask. Uh, we can't really do a bunch of different things all at the same time. We can keep track of three or four things, and beyond that, uh, something starts to fall out. So a number of experiments in the workplace show that people who are multitasking actually get less done at the end of the day than people who use a dedicated focus to one task, finish it, and then go on to the next. Multitasking, though, seems like one of those things that, uh, I, I don't know, it seems like people have a hard time not doing it. I'm, ju I'm just wondering why that is. If it, you know, if it is something where we're really not being more productive, and in fact, we're being less productive, why do you think it is that we keep doing multitasking? Two reasons, Chris. One is that um, we're under the illusion that it's working. And so if your brain is telling you, I'm good at something, you keep on doing it. Uh, but as a neuroscientist, I can tell you that one thing the brain's very good at is self-delusion. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, just because we think that it's so doesn't make it so. And the experiments bear that out, both from brain scans and from workplace experiments. The second reason we do it is that it makes us feel productive and it feels good to us to be doing all these things. There's a neurochemistry behind this. Every time we can tick off a little task on our internal to-do list, uh, we get a little shot of dopamine. And every time we pay attention to something new, we get another shot of dopamine. Dopamine is the chemical in the brain that makes us feel good. It's what mediates pleasure. And we set up what is a physiological dopamine addiction loop, where we crave more dopamine, even though the dopamine is being produced for things that aren't productive. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Dan Levitin. His new book is The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload. One of the things your book gets into is uh, sort of how we can be better at organizing, um, not necessarily learning new mental tricks. And I wanted to get into uh, some of the tips from your book. Uh, and the first, this seems to, uh, in some ways, go against the rise of the information age. One of your tips is use a paper to-do list. Yeah, so I, I do want to point out that um, in, in the book, I'm not prescribing or suggesting or, or recommending a bunch of high-tech solutions uh, to increase productivity. You don't have to go out and buy a new computer or go to the stationery store and get a new filing cabinet and a bunch of color-coded folders and tabs. I'm not talking about that. In general, I'm talking about very low-tech things that any of us can put together in an afternoon. And um, index cards or, or notepads is one such uh, suggestion because we now understand that the neuroscience of writing things down by hand allows for deeper encoding because it requires a lot more, uh, well, what we call deep processing, a lot more neural circuitry to write something by hand than to type it. And so you're apt to remember it better. Uh, 
Uh, and the other thing about writing it on paper is it's easier if you use index cards to resort them, put them in different piles, and put them in different stacks, and to have them in front of you when you're working at your computer. Uh, the problem with making computer lists, although that's better than nothing, is that it's, it's a little bit more cumbersome to cut and paste the items if you want to reorder them, and they're often hiding in a window behind the one you're working on. Uh, one of your other tips is uh, music to my ears, which is take breaks. Um, just so I don't get in trouble with my boss, how many breaks are we talking about? Well, this again gets back to the science of attention and the physiology of the brain. Um, the brain didn't really uh, evolve to stay focused uh, for long periods of time like we sometimes ask it to do. We push ourselves these days. I think all of us feel like if we stop work for even just five minutes, we're going to fall irretrievably behind. And, and the fact is, if you stop and take a break of about 15 minutes every two hours, it allows you to hit a kind of neural reset button in your brain so that when you come back to your work, you'll find that you're more creative, you're refreshed, you've replenished some of the depleted neurochemicals. And a number of studies show that at the end of the day, people who took these 15-minute breaks every couple of hours not only got more done than people who plowed through, but their work was of a higher quality and more creative. This is even more so true with naps. A single 15-minute nap in the afternoon gives you an effective IQ increase of 10 points. I don't know about you, but I, I would really like to have 10 points extra <laughs> IQ. I think all of us would like an extra 10 points on the IQ. I mean, in my line of work, that's the difference between getting tenure and not. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned the end of the day. I think a lot of people have trouble leaving their job at the end of the day when they go home, whether it's uh, to their own place or to their family or, or friends or whatever. Um, how big a challenge is that right now? Because it, it really does seem like, particularly with technology and you can get your email on your smartphone, uh, that we're so connected that it, it's maybe harder than ever before to leave work at work. You're absolutely right. So uh, we're all being asked to do more than ever before, uh, both at work and at home. Um, and I think a lot of us feel when we are at home that we can't be fully there. We've got these nagging thoughts in our head about things at work we didn't finish, uh, calls or emails we didn't return, um, worries that maybe we didn't solve a problem that we could have. And then when we're at work, we're thinking about all the things we didn't get to do at home. And so as a result, you end up being really in neither place fully. And when I'm talking about trying to get better organized, I want to be clear that I'm not talking about creating a bunch of mindless automatons who are rigidly strapped to a schedule all the time. I'm talking about a few simple changes we can make in how we structure and organize our time uh, so that when we're at work, we're more productive and efficient, which allows us to uh, really close the door on work at the end of the day and be present with our loved ones in our hobbies and in our leisure activities. Uh, I, uh, paradoxically, I think you know, being more, more efficient and productive uh, allows for more time to be spontaneous and creative. I can't believe I'm the only person who struggles uh, with email, um, and I'm curious um, how you organize your own email. What What's something that we can all do to sort of keep our email better organized? 
Well, after talking, you know, I, I interviewed a lot of CEOs and uh, government leaders, uh, military leaders, generals and admirals, some cabinet members in the U.S. government. Um, and these are highly effective, very, very busy people. And I'm adopting uh, two of the tips that they seem, many of them seem to be using. I've started doing this in the last couple of years. One is, um, like you, Chris, I think I get a lot of emails uh, that are not really urgent. Uh, I mean, things for something that's going to happen a month from now or just something that's informational that I don't really need to interrupt my work to look at. And then a bunch of stuff that's nonsense, like videos of cats playing the piano. Uh, <laughs> do you get those too? <laughs> keyboard cat. Who doesn't love keyboard cat? Exactly. So um, I opened up a separate email account under uh, a private address, and I gave that to only about eight or ten people who I want to be able to reach me urgently. So that includes my loved ones, uh, my boss, uh, co-workers, and I further instructed them, only use this account if you need to reach me right away. Use the old account that you had the address for for everything else. Uh, and so that's the first stage. Uh, the second is that the other account, the big one, uh, where I get hundreds of emails a day, I turn it off most of the day. And I have a, a partitioned period of time where I deal with emails, um, an hour in the morning and an hour in the late afternoon. And then I just plow through uh, all of those emails and I prioritize them and I uh, either reply or file them. Uh, but what it means is that I'm not interrupted every few seconds during the day as I'm trying to work or, for that matter, trying to enjoy some leisure time. Coming up, more with Daniel Levitin. This is Motley Fool Money. Listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Dan Levitin. His new book, already a New York Times bestseller, is The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload. I know what Area 51 is. What is Area 47? Uh, we're not supposed to talk about that one either. <laughs> oh, we're not? <laughs> Are aliens involved in that one too? <laughs> Area 47 is the... Um the not very poetic name for a part of the brain that I've been studying for the last 15 years, just behind your temples. It's a little sliver of, of tissue um, that tries to predict what's going to happen next in the world. And you can imagine the evolutionary advantage of this. Uh, it helps you to figure out if that lion running is running towards you and about to attack or running in another direction. Um, and it's looking basically for structure and patterns in the environment. The interesting thing about this is that it helps to modulate dopamine, that so-called feel-good hormone we were talking about earlier. Um, when we are listening to music or when we're reading a novel, watching a film, uh, that structure is trying to figure out what's going to happen next. If, it, if the, uh, the piece of music, for example, uh, doesn't hold any surprises, Area 47 shuts down because it's bored. If the music is completely surprising and you have no idea what's ever happening, Area 47 shuts down because it's frustrated. Uh, it has to hit just the right balance of familiarity and surprise or of, of predictability and unpredictability to keep it happy. Um, and this has really big implications for the workplace. 
What we now know, again through neuroscience research, is that the happiest workers in general are those who work in a job that's somewhat predictable, but also has a few well-structured surprises that allows them to exercise some ingenuity and some initiative. Workers generally don't like to feel that um, their work is exactly the same day in and day out. They, they, they and their brains savor the opportunity to exhibit some judgment and expertise. Your day job is as a professor. I'm curious, how organized are your students? And if they're like a lot of college students and maybe not quite as organized as they could be, is that a point of frustration for you? No, not at all. Uh, I mean, I recognize uh, if they're in a, in a university program, they're trying to learn things and trying to get better at organizing their lives. So um, they're eager and they're um, dedicated to to learning. Um, I do recognize that there are different systems and different styles that people have. So broadly speaking, some people are filers, they file everything, and other people are pilers, they put everything in stacks or piles. And both systems are perfectly fine depending on what you are comfortable with, with one exception. If you're dealing with paperwork uh, or computer files for that matter that are shared in an office or educational setting, um, piling is usually not a good system because only you know where the piles are. So I try to train the students uh, for that portion of their work that they're going to have to share with others, like me. They need to have a perfectly transparent system that anybody can navigate. Now, you're a neuroscientist. You're a best-selling author. You're also quite an accomplished musician. Um, do I have this right that... Uh, in addition to playing the guitar, the bass, the tenor saxophone, that you've been a session musician with, I don't know, little independent, small, struggling groups like the Grateful Dead and <laughs> Santana and Sting and David Byrne. What what kind of double life are you leading here? Well, uh, I, I've always had a passion for music, and, and I, I don't want to overstate uh, my qualifications there. I was a sound engineer and consultant for the Grateful Dead and Santana and Steely Dan. Uh, it's only in my later life as a neuroscientist that I've had the opportunity to perform live with Sting and with David Byrne. But it's true, I worked as a session musician in the 80s on a bunch of recordings. Uh, maybe uh, one of the more well-known ones was the soundtrack to the film Repo Man. Uh, before we wrap up, give me one music recommendation. It could be an album you're listening to. It could be uh, a song you just learned about and it's in heavy rotation on your iPod. What's what's one music recommendation you can make? Well, I, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't make just one. There's so many good things out there now. Uh, one of my favorite new bands is called Claire and the Reasons from uh, Brooklyn. I'm loving a new album by Phil Claypool called The Strong One. He's an artist out of Nashville. Uh, and Rodney Crowell uh, has um, put out three stellar albums in the last couple of years, and he has a duet album with Emmylou Harris on the way. And these are all just as good as music gets, as, as far as I'm concerned. The book is The Organized Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload. It is the latest New York Times bestseller from Dan Levitin, so check it out. Dan, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. 
So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Hey, before we go, have you checked out the Motley Fool podcast shop yet? If you need a new ball cap to get ready for baseball season, we've got you covered. We've got Motley Fool t-shirts, hoodies, travel mugs, and more. You can find it all at shop.fool.com. And while you're there, check out our number one best-selling item. It's the Motley Fool Money coffee mug. Again, you can find it at shop.fool.com. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. We'll be back with our usual show next week. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. We'll be right back.